considering on their own, on, the, on their own face value. In other words, rather than just uh, expounding the whole verse in its broader context, there are two things that we want to single out that John says that are very profound, and as I indicated, they stand on their own uh, value or their own weight. The first one is actually more towards the towards the end or the middle of the verse, where John makes the statement, he says, fear has to do with punishment. That's the first statement, fear has to do with punishment. And the second statement that we'll look at is John says, perfect love casts out fear. So those are the two statements. 
fear has to do with punishment and perfect love casts out fear. Now, obviously, if you look at the verse, the statement about perfect love is first. But what I want to do is begin with the statement that fear has to do with punishment. And I would contend that in saying that fear has to do with punishment, John is either consciously or unconsciously addressing the concept of fear at its most fundamental and rudimentary level. Fear has to do with punishment. And from a broader theological and biblical worldview, this actually takes us back to Genesis. In the book of Genesis, uh, before, in the garden, God tells Adam that you can eat from every tree in the garden except for the tree in the midst of the garden. But here's what he says. The day that you eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, you will die. Now, if we know the scriptures, we know what happened. Adam ate from the tree. And God has declared that there is a penalty or punishment for eating from the tree. So death is the declared punishment. And when Adam eventually eats from the tree that God told him not to eat from, eventually he tries to hide from the presence of God. Therefore, the first, uh, the first human expression of fear is God attempting, or Adam attempting to hide from the presence of God because he feared punishment. So here's uh, psychology today. I want to use their definition of fear. Psychology today says that uh, fear is the is 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 a response, or fear. They define a fear as a vital response to physical and emotional danger. So Adam has received a statement from God that you can eat from any tree in the midst of the garden. And then when God prohibits the particular tree, there is a, 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 an implied, if not explicit threat. The day you eat, you'll surely die. And even though we know that Adam did not physically die on the day that he actually ate from the fruit, from that day, he began to deteriorate, and his entire horizontal experience was disrupted. There were, there's dysfunction in the home, there's disease, and there are many things that he experiences in his horizontal experiences that really are triggers of fear. So again, if we go back to the psychology today definition that fear is a vital response to physical and emotional danger. Therefore, I think it would be accurate to say that the initial fear of death after the fall is the home base for all of our subsidiary fears. So all of our fears, whether they are physical 
or whether they are emotional in nature, are residual effects of our initial fear of punishment from God. We may not be able to make those links. It's not always very direct, but all fear that we experience, emotional and physical, is a result of the initial fear of punishment from the Creator. So whether it's fear of failure, fear, fear of missing out, fear of abandonment, fear of not being liked, fear of the future, fear of not being enough. All of these, and in their variations, are expressions of our fear of divine punishment. And divine punishment is imminent in all of the disorders and dysfunctions within the created order. Now, the Christian religion is very clear. We make the link between God and Adam, and we make the link between us and Adam, and we see everything emanating from that broken relationship and then God's promise. Other religions are not as explicit. They don't necessarily believe what we believe about God and punishment, fear of punishment from God as being the basis of all of our dysfunctions and disorders. And certainly other more secular disciplines such as psychology, they don't see that connection. But I would argue that what John says here, that fear has to do with punishment, is a very profound analysis of all of our phobias and all of our discomforts in this world. In other words, let me, let me put it this way, that when we talk about fear of failure, even though we may not make the, uh, uh, the leap from, uh, from fear of failure, whatever that failure may be, to fear of punishment with God, in a sense we can say this, that failure in that construct is the punishment. Abandonment, we perceive it as a punishment. And so those things that we are afraid of, missing out, we look at it from junior high school or, or middle school or high school, and you don't wanna be on the outside, fear of missing out, not being with the in crowd, the idea of being ostracized by your peers is perceived that is the punishment. Fear of, of not being liked, fear of failure, that is the punishment. And ultimately, all of our fears are derivatives of our fear of divine punishment. So when John makes this statement, that's, he's saying a mouthful that fear has to do with punishment. And even when individuals are not able to see that the thing that they are, are afraid of, emotionally or physically, is really a result of the disorder and the dysfunction that we have because of the threat of divine punishment, we still have fear to deal with. Now, what John says here about uh, fear and its connection to uh, the threat of divine punishment 
actually corresponds to two other things that we see in the scripture. For instance, Jesus says, do not fear men who can only destroy the body. So why do you fear men? And the reason or the manifestation of the fear of men, whether it's in political power, military power, or whatever it may be, or just a personal situation, the manifestation of fear is not wanting to upset those that you fear could bring you harm. So Jesus says, why do you fear man who can only destroy the body and not fear God or the one who was able to destroy both body and soul? So to me, what Jesus is doing is connecting all of our fear to this concept of punishment, which is what John does in our text. But also in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, even more explicitly, the writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death subject to lifelong slavery. So fear is a manifestation of our fallen state of enmity with God. So whether it is the decline and deterioration of our own bodies, whether it is the enmity that we see with various creatures, the idea of fear emanates from the threat of divine punishment. So to express it in another way, if there is no guilt from violating the divine law, there is no friction there, uh, between creature and creator, and there is no disorder in the created universe. One of the things that we see in scripture concerning the eschaton, the end of the age. And Isaiah expresses it, but it's seen in other places as well, similar imagery. But in the prophet Isaiah, he says, in that day, the lion shall lie down with the lamb. And why? Because there's no fear. We see natural enmity between certain animals. We see natural enmity even in human existence and relationships. And these, these, these animosities, these tensions, this enmity creates fear. And so fear itself is because of the threat of punishment and the fact of punishment is seen in all of the disorders and we've addressed this before, that we forget we live in a cursed creation. And the the manifestation of the curse is the tensions that create fear. So in the eschaton, there will be nothing to fear. And so that's why the lion can lay down with the lamb. That's why we can walk through the jungles in a, in a renewed creation and not fear the snakes or not fear animals that otherwise we are afraid of. So what the writer of Hebrews does is he not only says that there is a lifelong fear or a natural fear of death, 
but he describes it as being subject to lifelong slavery. That the fallen creature is enslaved, in essence, not just by the bondage of sin, but we're enslaved by fear. We are afraid. And fearful people are vulnerable people. Now, the other profound statement that John makes in this passage is what he opens the, the, the verse with, and that is, he says, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Ultimate punishment that we are afraid of is punishment from the Creator. But we are also afraid of other lesser forms of, pu of punishment. We are afraid of being left out. We are afraid of not being liked. We are afraid of heights. We are afraid of the darkness because these smaller, segmented areas of anxiety are reminders of a greater threat. Yet John says, perfect love casts out fear. It would have been enough for him to say love. Because certainly on a, on a smaller scale and on an emotional level, people who have experienced great tragedies that have given them any number of fears, fear of being alienated, fear of being left alone, when they are loved by someone, it helps them in a sense to overcome some of those fears. We've shared our experiences with um, dealing with the different orphanages in, uh, in the Rafiki villages and uh, in conversation with some of the missionaries and some that we've been able to see firsthand, where some of the children who have been either abandoned by family members and or they have had experiences in state-run orphanages, they are afraid, even though they are brought into the confines of a loving village like the uh, Rafiki village where they have clothes, where they have beds and so forth. And I've told the story of the young man in Uganda who had been in the state orphanage and we actually visited that orphanage. And uh, it was, you could smell it from the time you walked in. It was just a horrible, the conditions were horrible. And what they would do is when people would volunteer or when, when people would, would donate clothing or toys, they would put all of those things in the middle of the floor and then call the children in and it was pretty much the survival of the fittest. That you get what you can get and then you protect it. So in our Rafiki village in Uganda, one of the, young, one of the kids that had been in the state orphanage was brought to the home and uh, he was a part of the Rafiki village. The parents noticed that he was, there were two things that he was doing. He, the first thing that he did was after he would eat in the cafeteria, he was sneaking food into his room. And, they had, and when they would discover the food under the pillow, they said, listen, you don't have to steal the food because you'll have breakfast tomorrow, you'll have lunch, the food will always be there. The other, things that, other thing they discovered, they were looking for his shoes and some of his clothes. And again, he was trying to put those, hide those so that they would be protected. 
because he feared that the shoes that he wore today would not be available for him the next day. And the love that he experienced in the Rafiki village was intended to convey to him that you are loved in a different way. So you don't have to fear not having. And I use that to illustrate the point that our fallen condition and the things that we experience in various relationships make us afraid. And even if those fears might seem to be unreasonable to some people, we don't always understand the experiences that people have had to make them fretful. And so the answer to it is love. Love has a way of calming our fears. And what this young man had to realize, this boy, I say young man, at the time I think he was six or seven years old, is that he realized that he was loved by the people that served him. And that's what enabled him to get over his fear. So if John had just said that love casts out fear in a relative, limited context, that would be absolutely correct. That love, even temporal love, even flawed love, has a way of helping us to overcome our fears. And, and, and here's, but that's not what John says. He doesn't just say that love casts out fear, which it does. But he says perfect love casts out fear. Now, here's the thing with that. If fear has to do with punishment because of sin, then the perfect love that John references here must be the love of God the Father in sending his Son, sending forth his Son to live and to die for us. And the perfect love that John is referencing here must be the love of the Son. Love of the Son to do the will of the Father and love of the Son for those for whom he came to save that caused him to lay down his life. The love, the perfect love that John is referencing here is the love that is contained in the message of the gospel. Jesus loves us with a perfect love. I like the way John begins, I think it's chapter 2, where he says, what manner of love is this? That we are the children of God. And so being the children of God, we are no longer afraid of not being accepted. And so what he says here, that perfect love casts out fear, is really the love of the triune God, which is contained in the gospel. And this, and not only is, the, is it the love of the triune God in the gospel, it is the love of the triune God, which is the gospel itself. The gospel is an announcement of God's love. 
writer of Hebrews in two places demonstrates what John says here, that love, perfect love, casts out fear. In Hebrews 4, 16, he says, because of the mediator or the great high priest that we have, fear is cast out. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And we can find mercy and we can find grace in our time of need. Now process, process that for a moment. What is mercy? Mercy is withholding judgment. And what is grace? Grace is giving what we don't deserve. So when do we need grace? When we're undeserving. And when do we need mercy when we're guilty? And can you imagine a person who is guilty and unworthy boldly going before the throne of God and asking for both mercy and grace? Not that we would not go and ask for it, but the writer of Hebrews says we can boldly Go to the throne of grace because perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love reminds us that we are the children of God when we've messed up. Perfect love reminds us that we belong to him and there is nothing or no one that can pluck us out of his hand or remove his favor from us. But then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 19, depending on your translation, it says that we now have bold or boldness or confidence to enter in behind the veil. In other words, we have boldness to go where the former priest could not go. Only the high priest could go behind the veil, and that was once a year. That was after all of the cleansing rituals that purified him to go into what represented the holy presence of God. But because of the perfect love of the gospel, brothers and sisters, we can go boldly where we could not go before. Now let me put it in these terms. We have bold access to the presence of God because of the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, the gospel or the antidote for all of our continuing fears and anxieties that we experience in this world is a better grip and a better grasp of the perfect love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that we receive in the gospel. And the challenge of the Christian life is to reason from that perfect love as we deal with all of the anxieties and issues of life 
as we deal with things that we can't fully explain, even as we deal with those issues that we can't get over. And we know how our peers and our friends would treat us if they only knew. But God does know. And he has loved us with a perfect love. And that perfect love cast out fear. And John says this in a rather emphatic way, and it, it, it causes a problem for people because here's what he says. Let me go back to the beginning of the verse. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love because love indicates harmony. And fear is a result of disharmony. So he says there is no fear of love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And there's, here's what he says. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I think he's presenting an interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, we have received perfect love in the gospel. And on the other hand, we are continuously being perfected in that love. And it is the, to the degree that we have not fully grasped or gripped the knowledge of the perfect love that we have in the gospel that we still wrestle with fears. And that is going to be our challenge until the Lord removes us from this life. And always the solution to our anxieties our, our, our phobias, our concerns, is that we are the recipients of that perfect love. And it's from that perfect love that we are to, we are to reason in all of our trials and all of our anxieties. I know we have the champion kind of Christians that say, ah, oh, I'm over this and I'm over that. But the reality is this. Fear, just as the old man remains in us, so does fear. And we're all afraid of something. But we've been loved with the perfect love. And the perfect love casts out fear. So our growth and our grasp and our understanding of that perfect love is what enables us to deal with those things that otherwise give us fear. David puts it this way in Psalms 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So brothers and sisters, the perfect love of the triune God, which is the gospel and is announced in the gospel, is not a matter of us whistling through a graveyard. It's the knowledge that God has loved us and whatever our lingering issues are here, remember, perfect love of God, the final product of the perfect love of the gospel is a, is a place, is an earth where the lion can lie down with the lamb 
And you and I can live in a place where we're no longer under threat. Not threat of our physical well-being, not threat of someone embarrassing us or not liking us. Here is the fruit of the gospel, that we are now no longer under condemnation. And God is fixing this earth to bring us to a place where we no longer have to fear. I'm not saying that you are less of a Christian if you do have lingering fears. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that God's love for you is as such that in spite of those things that threaten you and no matter what it triggers, memories and, and concerns that it triggers, he cradles you even in that season and reminds you of his perfect love. This is why we always need the gospel so that we can bring the substance of that truth to our immediate context and reason from that, that if we have been loved with the perfect love, then all our reasons for fear have been cast out. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that as frail and fallen creatures, we have much guilt and we have many fears and many anxieties. But we thank you for your perfect love that has cast out all of our fears and our reasons for fear. Grow us in the knowledge of that love and strengthen us to integrate the knowledge of that love into all of our circumstances and all of our situations. Thank you for your love. It's unfailing. And even when we fail, your love does not. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.